Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Wisdom, Wisdom Wednesday. Wednesday. I feel like we need oh, a little we definitely do. song. I yeah. mean, we have a song. <laughs> no, but like a different song. A ditty? A ditty. A different <laughs> song. How... How are you? Oh, man. You know, I'm good. I'm good. I want to say I'm good in spite of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the muck of life, right? Yes. In I my book you. of poetry, I have a poem about the shit stew. And I kind of feel like I'm in the shit stew right now. Okay, hold on. You know what? You got to read it. <laughs> a brief pause for Tessa. I told her she needed to read it to us. We're ready. Which is a great idea. Okay, so stirring the shit stew. This is the actual title of the poem. The muck, the stench, the pain, the reverberation, the smear and stain, the strain. Grunt, growl, bare your teeth, tap your chest and grumble through it. Stir the shit stew. What comes up for you? Oh, <laughs> It's kind of fun, right? I, I want to show the artwork in this book, if you haven't picked it up yet, was done by my amazing, talented sister who drew the phases of the moon. So, like, this is one of those books that you could flip through and you would see the phases of the moon change. So, each poem has a particular moon phase. So, thank you, Megan Benedictus, for being such a talented illustrator and for sharing your gift with me. Yes, we love that, Megan. She is so talented and it's such an incredibly powerful book of poetry that you designed essentially to have read for Shavasana. Yeah, yeah. That was the idea behind it. I remember yeah. sitting, we were in a 300 hour teacher training or mastermind. <laughs> Three, 300, um, I think. Which is where I wrote, I'd say 50% of this book was throughout that training. And we were kind of workshopping titles and that one kept coming up and everyone was like, well, that's the title, a book of poetry for Shavasana. Well, yeah. The Dark Moon, a book of poetry for Shavasana. Yes. Yeah. And it's so poignant to the phases and the changes that happen during this time. I mean, we're in spring, but spring is going to be over here in a couple of weeks and it's going to be summer. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is. So how do you, do you think that as we get older, time speeds up? It sure does. It feels like somebody's grabbing me by my ankles and spinning me around in really fast circles. It's so wild, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. It is so weird. I mean, you think back to childhood, remember how summers in between school would feel so long? So long. It would feel like years to yeah. me. Yeah. We would go up to San Francisco because my dad's sister, my aunt, 
they had moved up to San Francisco when I was little. I was, I don't know, between the ages of six and seven. Oh, it was probably seven because my little cousin was born shortly thereafter, and that's our age difference. Mm -hmm. They moved up to San Francisco, and basically from ages seven to about 16, I would go up to San Francisco for the summers. That's where we would go and spend our summers, and it was just magical and amazing and so much fun to be away from home and my parents and to have that yeah, like endless summer days. And I just remember loving and also not loving because I missed my friends and I wanted to go back to school. And and then once I'd get to school, I couldn't wait for summer to come around. It's like yeah. this this thing happens, right? When you're at a certain age, the stages of life. And I loved learning about this when I was studying yoga for the different stages of life. How in the beginning, you know, we are learning and we're so compelled to try new things and we're experiencing the world for the very first time. And then as we become teenagers and we get a little older, we start trying to figure out what our likes are. We begin to get more rooted in our individuality, our characteristics and so on. And the older that we get, we get more set in our ways we become more rigid and more, it's more difficult for us to experience the newness of life. Mm -hmm. Where the world hasn't changed, we changed. And I feel that as we age and get older, we spend more time reflecting on what was and what our life was in the past because You've learned from your past. We are who we are because of our past and what we've learned or not learned. And I think this is, for us, obviously, we're like the same age, but I am starting to see how and why people get midlife crisis. Like, <laughs> why people yeah. get to this point, right, in your life where you start to reflect and really look at your life and assess what has been happening. So I'm curious if that's the same for you and for the people listening, since our age demographic seems to be between the ages of 34 and 45, I would say that we're all kind of in the same, on the same path where, and look, I know so many people that have had midlife crisis in their thirties or, you know, they, it happens in their fifties. But I'm curious mm -hmm. for you, if you've experienced or have been experiencing the same. Yeah, I think back to mid-20s, I feel like I went through a, a quarter-life crisis, and that felt very career-oriented. And it feels like, as I look back on that, that quarter-life crisis with the career orientation lasted a good decade. <laughs> Not so dramatically, you know, you think... Yeah. You say midlife crisis, and then you think about those really earth-shattering changes that one might make in a midlife crisis. So mine wasn't so dramatic, but it did feel like there was a lot of existential questioning of the purpose of why I'm doing what I am doing and what I thought I would be doing, and then the reality of what it is I actually spent most of my day doing. Um, and career's a big deal when you're 
when you're a young person coming into the world feeling like I was such an idealist feeling like I here's where I look back and I go wow I've changed a lot being such an idealist in college really wanting to make a huge difference in the world I thought maybe I'll be a lawyer maybe I'll be a policymaker maybe I will affect change in some very big profound way and I thought well, all I have to do is have this goal, focus on it, and the rest will just kind of fall into place magically. And over time, I became pretty jaded by, I think, probably being in the corporate machine, working at a law firm, working for venture capital, working for a healthcare company, working for high-tech startups, and just realizing like the amount of pushing a boulder up a hill that it really takes to, it seems like, to affect change. So, yeah, when I reflect back on my life, I feel like I've changed a lot in that respect. And I still, like you were saying, you know, we get stuck in our ways as we get Mm -hmm, older. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do feel like that is true for many of us. And I also feel like I'm trying so hard to hold on to that piece of me that I know is innate to have this openness, this open-mindedness, this free spirit, this curiosity about myself, about life, about our capacities as sentient beings, as human beings, and our relationship to nature, to animals. I'm really trying so hard to hold on to that as I head into my 40s. Yes. Um, So that's, yeah. Did I answer your question? (laughs) Yeah, no, you did. No, it's so, it's such a, I mean, look, it's a reflective question. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that type of reflection. And and we do what we do with regard to practicing mindfulness or practicing yoga or any contemplative practice. We have to be able to reflect. We have to be able to observe where our flaws or faults are. And it's up to us if we endeavor to change them or to choose differently. One of the things that I think about a lot is... I think one of my biggest, I would say, character defects as I get older is like regretting mm. not doing things sooner. And and that's been my entire my entire life. It has always felt like I've missed the boat somehow, somehow or another. It's I wish I would have done this sooner. I wish I would have started this sooner. I wish I would have joined that group sooner. I wish I would have started my career sooner. I wish I would have started writing sooner. I wish I would have started the podcast sooner. It's just like, it's a constant, right? Where we talked about it a couple weeks ago, right? Where it's that time limit. This is sort of the the problem and the solution are Mm -hmm. one and the same. And this is the constant struggle that I find myself. And maybe for the listeners out there, you can relate to this, but you can't turn back time. Mm-hmm. If I could turn back time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we can't we can't do that. And it's like worrying. It doesn't really serve a purpose. It doesn't really do anything. Worrying has never resulted in anything good. And regret has never served. I'll take that back just a little bit because if you dwell in regret, It's not going to serve a purpose. However, if you utilize regret as a way to fuel you and excite you to choose differently or not 
make the same choice later, then it can be extremely helpful. At that point, it's not regret. It's just you utilizing a lesson that you learned and Mm -hmm. you can just make different choices. And so, but I think for me, the, the scary monster in my head that comes out a lot is this intense negative track that can really start to play. And I notice it it only starts to play the closer I get to my birthday, you know? So it's like I'm a month or two months away. It starts because I'm constantly trying to be better, learn and evolve and learn where I can just be a better person. But not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody reflects that same way, but I think it's definitely something that I feel people can relate to in some way, shape, or form. So that being said, Tessa, we have an incredible show today. It's a, a special double feature, so to speak. And you spoke to a very special guest, which you're going to tell us about. And I'm so excited to listen to this. And I spoke to a very special guest, which I'll tell the audience a little bit more about once you tell us who our first guest is going to be. And I hope that everybody that's listening enjoys this episode. Okay. So our very special guest is Shauna Shapiro, PhD, or Dr. Shauna Shapiro. I will go into the full intro of all of the many merits that Shauna has accumulated in the show. I won't bore you with that right now, but she is a professor at Santa Clara University. She teaches psychology. And it was such a fascinating conversation as we, Rosie, you and I study and teach meditation and in yoga, this ancient practice of, to me, this idea towards speaking of goals of becoming self-actualized, becoming self-realized. And so Shauna's work, it feels like is very much in alignment with that in terms of the scientific aspect of what happens when we set an intention. She talks about this on a scientific level. Is not measurable? What is the data behind it? What happens with the chemical response in our body when we set intention, when we meditate, And so it was such a fascinating conversation because she told me about, I love the science behind all of this. So she she told me about all of this. She told everyone, she's going to tell you about it. And really practical tools to put those things into place in your life. And very simple, like everyone, we can do this, just placing your hand on your heart was one of my favorites, is releasing dopamine in the body, that physical response. I remember learning this from a fellow yoga teacher a while ago that just placing a hand on the body does something for the nervous system. The nervous, have you heard this, Rosie? The Mm -hmm. nervous system likes a closed chain, so a closed chain loop. So anytime we touch, which is why touch is so important, ourselves, someone else, we're creating this closed system chain for the nervous system, which releases that dopamine in the body. So I'm super excited for this conversation. It was such a blast to talk to her. And yeah, I'm not going to give any more away. Yeah, I'm, I'm so I'm totally into it. I'm sold. I'm ready. I've got my notebook out. I got my very special 0.5 pen to take notes. I am so excited. 
And directly following Dr. Shauna's interview is my conversation with my dear friend, Amber Liliestrom. She is an author. She is a mindset coach. She's a poet. She is a mom. She is just an incredible all-around human being. She talks about her near-death experience and how it shaped who she is today. And she details the story, which I'd not actually talked to her about. So it was really emotional and just a really great conversation talking about shifting our perspective and being able to point out the problem and also the solution. I mean, she gives some great insight to how we can do that and return back to the core of who we are. So I think that this episode is packed with some really great knowledge, great wisdom, and I'm excited to share it with you all. So enjoy. All right, everyone. Hello, hello. Welcome to a fantastic and long-awaited, at least for me, episode of Radically Loved. My name is Tessa Tovar. Today, I'm standing in for our amazing, magnanimous host, Rosie Acosta. Thank you for honoring me with your presence. Shauna, I'm so excited to introduce you. I'll quickly just give the audience a little bit of background on you. Shauna Shapiro, PhD, is a professor, author, and internationally recognized expert in mindfulness and compassion. Nearly 1 million people have watched her 2017 TEDx talk, The Power of Mindfulness. It's rated one of the top 10 talks on mindfulness. Dr. Shapiro has published over 150 journal articles and co-authored two critically acclaimed books translated into 14 languages. They are The Art and Science of Mindfulness and Mindful Discipline. Her work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Mashable, Wired, USA Today, the Dr. Oz Show, HuffPost, Yoga Journal, and The American Psychologist. That is quite a list, Shauna. <laughs> Dr. Shapiro has been an invited speaker for the King of Thailand, the Danish government, Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Summit, and the World Council for Psychotherapy, as well as for Fortune 100 companies, including Google, Cisco Systems, Procter & Gamble, Genentech, and Dr. Shapiro is a summa cum laude graduate of Duke University and a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute co-founded by the Dalai Lama. So you have a new guided journal out. I happen to be blessed with having received a copy. It's so beautiful. I love it. I've been working in it in the mornings. It's, it's called Good Morning, I Love You, a guided journal for calm, clarity, and joy out April 12th, 2022. So... I highly recommend picking this up if you are like me and you want something that helps you get kind of centered and and guides you. Like if you've ever opened up a journal to a blank page and you were like, what the heck am I supposed to write? This is the journal for you. It's beautiful. I highly recommend it. Shauna, welcome to the show. That was quite the introduction. <laughs> yeah, hope, hopefully everyone's still with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate your time. If you're watching online, Shauna's got the beautiful background of the university where she teaches. It's it's Santa Clara? Santa Clara University. Santa Clara University up on YouTube for you viewers to see. It's so pretty. How are you? How is your day going? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. I'm really glad you received the journal. It, actually, shipping has been delayed, so they're coming out next week, but you can still pre-order it on Amazon and 
It's been really exciting, just the kind of anticipation. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote this journal because there was such a huge response to my book, Good Morning, I Love You. And so many people asked, well, what do I do now? And so as a scientist and as a professor, I'm really interested in how do people change? Mm -hmm. And I know that while books are helpful, they don't change your brain, that it's only through practice, repeated practice, that we can start to carve out new pathways in our brain and our mind and our nervous system and actually see changes in our lives. And so I wrote this journal to really support people in just five minutes a day of actually engaging in specific practices, as well as having free space to write, as you noticed. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a workbook journal combination to really give you the, the biggest bang. Yeah. And it really does. I find that so helpful. It is nice to have the option to be guided and to have free space. So it's kind of like there's something for everyone in there. Mm. So you are a professor at Santa Clara. What subject do you teach? Psychology. Psychology. So I study psychology. I actually train in the graduate school. So I teach therapists who are becoming therapists. That's uh-huh. my students. I don't really teach undergraduates anymore. And I love it because these practices of mindfulness and self-compassion, you know, with all the thousands of people that I've worked with as a clinical psychologist have been the most powerful. And so the idea behind this journal was really to give people tools who maybe don't have time or resources for therapy, but tools to kind of provide this roadmap to take them on a journey of of self-transformation. That's so sweet. I love that. Yes. Very nice. And so I'm thinking back to my actually high school psychology class, which was many, many years ago. I'm not going to age myself too badly, but (laughs) I'm just curious about the landscape of, of teaching and study in that realm. I bet it's changed so much since I studied it. I remember learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Jungian psychology. There's so many different styles of therapy, of counseling, of psychology. I'm thinking along the lines of like EMDR. I'm thinking about somatic therapy, talk therapy. How do you approach guiding people to become psychologists these days? That's a kind of a big question, but I'll let you. The big question is a really important one. So the field of psychology has grown tremendously. I think especially with the kind of recent discoveries in neuroscience and our understanding of how the brain grows, how it develops, how it changes. And what I would say is this discovery of neuroplasticity, Mm -hmm. this understanding that we can literally re-architect the very structure of our brain in ways that lead to greater calm, greater happiness, uh, greater joy is really remarkable. And I think psychology has moved in a direction of how do you not just do talk therapy once a week, which isn't Mm. really going to have the impact, but how do you teach people specific practices that they can integrate into their daily life and create change? And I think that's really where my focus is. And in terms of training therapists, for me, the key to therapy, it doesn't matter how many tools and skills and knowledge you have, if you're not present, it doesn't really matter. And so the first thing I do in training our graduate students is in mindfulness, in how to be present and pay attention. Because if you're listening, you may have noticed that your mind has already wandered off. (laughs) Don't feel bad. Uh, The average person's mind wanders on average 47% of the time. So it's about half of your life that you're spaced out. So the first thing we learn in my classes is just how to pay attention, how to focus, how to train and stabilize the mind in the present moment. 
Yeah, that's so helpful. I love that. And can you define mindfulness for us? I feel like it's it's kind of a broad term, it, you know, in this realm and, and the audience members, are they're no strangers to hearing us talk about it, but I think it'd be helpful to have your definition of mindfulness. Absolutely. I agree. I think it's become so popularized that it's kind of diluted what the term means. And we just kind of throw around the word mindful all the time. Uh-huh. So my colleagues and I actually created a scientific model. We, we published two papers on what mindfulness is, and I'll, I'll distill it down to you into three key elements. Mm-hmm. So the first element of mindfulness is your intention. Mm-hmm. That's just knowing why am I paying attention? What do I care about? We have millions of choices of where we focus our attention. And, and usually it's not even conscious. We're just getting like, we're like, you know, bopping around from news to social media, to the phone. And so the first step is just knowing what do I want to focus on? What do I care about? And our intentions, they kind of set our compass. The second element is your attention. And this is about focusing in the present moment. So again, if you've noticed your mind wandering off, that's okay. We're learning with mindfulness how to focus and how to come back to the present moment. So that's your attention. And then the third element is your attitude. And this is paying attention with kindness, with curiosity. The third element is usually overlooked. It's like, oh, it's just kind of a side note or something nice to have, but it's actually the most important. Hmm. What the research shows is that when you pay attention in a critical judgmental way, which if you do that, you're not alone. We tend to judge other people. We tend to especially judge ourselves. What happens when you do that is it shuts the learning centers of the brain down. So you can't learn while you're judging. The key is this attitude of kindness, which bathes our system in dopamine and oxytocin. So dopamine turns on the learning centers. Oxytocin creates this sense of safety and it creates this perfect environment for learning. And so for anyone who's wanting to make changes in your life, mindfulness is kind of the foundation. Hmm. So I'm thinking about, (laughs) I hesitate to say this. My husband is so kind and and sweet. He's a great life partner, but I often chide him for being very judgmental. (laughs) And as I'm listening to you talk, I reflect on conversations that we have frequently where I often kind of call him out for being judgmental. And I wonder how do we kind of make that switch to approaching things with kindness and turning off the judgment? Right. So first of all, there's a difference between judgment and discernment. Mm. So it's okay to see things clearly, to be like, "Mm, that's not healthy or that's not okay. So when I say non-judgmental, I want to be really clear. This doesn't mean we don't fight for social justice issues. It doesn't mean that we just like throw up our hands and be like, oh, you know, treat me however you want. Non-judgmental means that we're not saying, I'll give you an example. So poison, Mm -hmm. a judgmental view of poison is that's evil. It's bad. A discerning view of poison is if you ingest it in this way, it will kill you. Mm -hmm. If you use it in this way, it could be a a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. We know that mold and it was developed into kind of penicillin and, and different vaccines. So the idea is to not judge as good or bad, but to try to see things clearly. Uh And for people who tend to be judgmental, you don't want to judge them for judging. You don't want to shame them for being judgmental because then you're doing the same thing and you're shutting down their learning centers. Uh So for me, the key to change is awareness. It's just saying, huh, I'm curious. I noticed you're, you're saying this about that. How does it feel in your body when you're judging? People can feel it. When you're judging something or someone or yourself, it, you're contracted. Mm-hmm. When you're open and curious, there's like a, a freedom in the body. It feels better. Yeah. 
Oh, that's such a nice reminder. Thank you. I'm going to practice that. As you're saying these things, I'm like, oh, yeah, I am judging him for being judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) So that's helpful. And I'm also thinking, okay, I don't feel like I'm someone who often shows up with judgment right away. I love that. It's almost like a light switch of discernment of kind of removing the color of good or bad and and approaching Mm -hmm. things with that. Well, how do we use it? The intention, really. It's your intention. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the journal. In particular, just kind of on a broader scale, how important are journals in your life? You created this book. I imagine it means a great deal to you. Yeah. So it's interesting. When I thought about creating this journal, I realized, you know, I went back and looked in our garage and all my my areas of, of storage. And I have been keeping a journal since I was 17 years old. My whole life, I have these boxes of journals and it was so fun to go through them and explore. And what I'll say is the research is very clear that keeping a journal is good for your mental health. There's no doubt about it. The other thing that was interesting that I found as I was studying about this is that when we write something down, we're 40% more likely to remember it. Mm. So as we're trying to make changes, it's one thing to have an insight and be like, okay, I figured this out. I don't want to do this again. But how often does that lead to actual change? And so I think writing down our process is really helpful and leads to much more successful outcomes. And so I got really excited about this because originally I was just going to create a good morning. I love you cute journal just to kind of go along with the book. So many people wanted to kind of write down things from the book. But then as I started thinking about it, I was like, I want to really integrate some of the most important scientific practices with space to journal about them and with inspiring quotes and with beauty so that there's, it's kind of like this dance between the science and the practice and creativity and art. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you. And I'm curious too, I think there's a pretty good story behind the title, Good Morning, I Love You, and the practice of waking up and telling yourself that. Yeah. Because that's what, what the invitation is, right? To say, I love you in the morning. That is one of the first practices you'll learn. And it is, for me, a really significant story. And it's interesting because my first book, I titled Good Morning, I Love You. And my publisher said, but you're a scientist and a professor. And this is going to this is gonna sound too new agey. And you're not going to get the audience you want. And I explained that this was the single most powerful practice I'd learned. And I wanted it on the front cover because... People have this kind of judgment about self-love. Like it feels like ugh, you kind of roll your eyes, right? And, and you feel like, well, if I'm kind to myself or compassionate with myself, I'm never going to change. Mm-hmm. And what the research shows is the exact opposite, that people who score higher in self-compassion, self-love, they're more likely to stick to healthy eating. They're more likely to exercise. They're more likely to take care of themselves. And because then people are like, oh, well, then am I going to become selfish? And the research shows they're more likely to be rated as generous and loving and giving by their partners and their family. Mm. So self-love makes you actually a better person all around. For me, it was really hard to develop this idea of being kind to myself. And when some years back, I was going through a very challenging divorce and my meditation teacher suggested I start practicing self-love. And she said, I want you to say, I love you, Shauna, every day. And I was like, no way. <laughs> it was just so contrived and inauthentic. And, and, and frankly, I was feeling a lot of self-loathing at the time. I was feeling very guilty that our marriage hadn't worked. We had have a son together. We had, he was three years old at the time. And I was really, truly devastated. And 
So I kind of said, no, I can't do that. It's not, it's not authentic. And she said, well, how about just saying good morning, Shauna? When you wake up, instead of judging and beating yourself up, just put your hand on your heart or release this oxytocin and just say good morning. And so the next day I went home and, you know, I'm a good student. I'm a professor and I, I follow orders. So I put my hand on my heart. I took a breath and I said, good morning, Shauna. And it was kind of nice, right? Instead of like first thing your alarm goes off and you're beating yourself up, there was this flash of kindness. And I continued to practice and I started noticing subtle shifts. Like I would be a little bit more supportive and a little less judgmental. And a couple months later, it was my birthday. And it was the first birthday that probably in my life I'd ever been alone. My son was with his father at a long planned reunion with their family, that side of the family. And I remember I woke up and I was completely alone and I put my hand on my heart to do my little practice. And I had this image of my grandmother come to me and she had passed a couple of years before. So it was really special and I could just feel her love surrounding me. And before I knew it, I said, good morning. I love you, Shauna. And it was as if the dam around my heart burst and this flood of love came through and I could feel my grandmother's love and my mother's love. And I felt my own self-love. And I wish I could tell you every day since then has been this miracle of (laughs) self-love. And that's not true. I've still felt a lot of doubt and a lot of shame, but the pathway was established and I've continued to practice every day. And I'll say some days it feels awkward and some days it feels beautiful. And some days I feel numb and some days I feel sad, but I keep planting that seed. I feel the kind of purity of my intention to develop greater kindness toward myself. That's such a beautiful story. I love it so much. I remember reading it in the journal, so I'm really grateful that you shared it with us here. And I will say it has kind of a happy ending too. So my book ends with my divorce. And last summer I was remarried after nine years of being a single mom, I was remarried to really the love of my life. And recently Goop published an essay just a couple of days ago about how developing self-love was what allowed me to kind of recognize this romantic love, this love that was healthy and felt safe because it felt healthy and safe inside of myself. But I realized that's what love feels like. It doesn't feel like angsty and, you know, you know, it feels actually like home. So yeah. that, that's the update on the story that, that no one knows. <laughs> Yay. Well, congratulations on your new marriage. And I'm Thank so, you. that's such a, I'm, I love happy endings. So, and I'm a hopeless romantic, so I'm really happy to hear that. So that has me thinking about those of us that have these repetitive, it's like we find our type and maybe it's an unhealthy relationship and we continue to go back to that relationship over and over again. And I think the question here for me is, why is it so hard for us to change? I think it's easy to judge, speaking of judgment, like ourselves and say, oh, well, it's a lack of willpower, motivation, or I'm being lazy. But I'm sure it can't be that simple. What do you think about this? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is the reason that we don't change is not because we can't. It's because we keep doing the same thing. If you think about it from a neuroplasticity perspective, if you keep going down the same pathway, you're just carving it deeper. So the only way to get somewhere new is to take a new path. And the reason we keep choosing partners that are unhealthy for us and not good fits is not because we're stupid or not because we're weak. 
it's typically because of our attachment bonds is when we were younger and it feels familiar, even though it's painful. And so for me, and I trust me, (laughs) I have a relationship history. I kept doing, repeating the same thing and dating the same type of men over and over again. And it wasn't until I found this compassion for myself that I was able to step out of outside the cycle. And I remember when I was getting divorced, I remember I drove straight to my grandparents' house, my non and grandpa. And I remember I had my son in the back seat. He was in his little car seat and we get there and I'm sobbing and I walk in the front door, I like bang it open. And I was like, Nana, how do you make it work? Like you and grandpa have been married, you know, at that time they were married 70 years in total, but at that time, maybe it was 60 years. I was like, how you're so in love and you're so good to each other. You're so generous with each other. Like, how do you do it? And she said, self-love it's self-love. And I never put that all together. Right. And she had already passed before I'd ever done the good morning. I love you practice literally until last week. And then I remembered her saying that. And so what I would say is she had a lot of wisdom and that, you know, it's really where it starts is that when you start to treat yourself with kindness, you start to value yourself and there's just things feel different. And my husband is radically different than anyone I've ever dated. And it still feels kind of like a miracle that we were able to find each other. Mm, Yeah. Oh, what a precious story. So, and speaking of the journal, I know there's, there's evening practices, there's morning practices. Can you give us a a little bit of an idea of some of these, these practices without giving too much away, but just like a little (laughs) teaser? Well, you have a very important one, which is good morning. I love you, but. So the reason I created the journal and the reason I created it with morning and evening practices is that the research shows that your mood in the morning and your mood in the evening are the best predictors of your physiological health. It actually predicts the length of your telomeres and the health of your mitochondria, which is the body's energy battery. So these are two of the biggest markers we have of aging and of vitality and health. And so I got to thinking, well, your mood in the morning and your mood in the evening, we better protect it because usually that's the time that people are on their phones or on social media. And this is the most potent time. So I created the journal to have kind of five minutes of practice in the morning, five minutes in the evening, just to kind of get this extra oomph in terms of practice. And the morning practices are always different. There's different practices every single morning. And to give you an example, besides doing good morning, I love you, which you have to do the whole time, every single day, or just good morning is enough. But a question will, it'll say, if you could give yourself advice, your younger self, what would it be? Or write yourself a love letter on page, you know, 180 so that, you know, a month from now you discover it. Mm. Or when in your life has someone forgiven you and how does it feel? Or we just have quotes, you know, inspiring quotes. One that's coming to mind is have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. It's from Rilke. So I put quotes of kind of my favorite poets and authors and it's special. I'm kind of excited. I just got my pre-order copy and I have it by my bed and I'm going to start going through it and just uh, going on the journey with everyone else. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. How to love the questions themselves. And mm-hmm. so that's that's like a healing solve to my soul. I find that, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, that the 
in between of decision or like moving from what the transition is so hard. And I feel like there's so many questions in there of right or wrong or good or bad and Mm -hmm. the judgment again, (laughs) Yeah, but feeling like, how do I cultivate that discernment and really know what the right choice is for me? So that the embracing of the questions is something that is to be celebrated is such a nice reminder. Yeah. Beautiful. (laughs) Thanks. Will you tell me about the weekly deep dive? Yes. So I know that people are busy and that's why I've kept this journal very short with just five minutes a day. I was a single mom for nine years and now I have four teenagers. So like, (laughs) I understand what it means to be, have a full life. However, I'm also a scientist and I wanted to make sure that people got the most kind of science-based practices possible. So once a week, I call them deep dives and there's kind of a deeper, more intensive practice that doesn't take five minutes. These are more like 25 minute, 20 minute practices that you can go deeper into a topic such as cultivating joy or self-compassion or forgiveness. And so each week there's one, one of those practices to do. Mm, Yeah, that's nice juxtaposition. I'd like to talk about intentions and Mm. how just by making them can lead to happiness. Yeah. Setting an intention can lead to happiness. Will you, will you talk to me, all of us about that a little bit? So intentions are so powerful and so underrated. And so what I want people to know is that intentions, of course, are psychological and spiritual. You right. You can set your aspiration, your intention. They're also neurochemical. When you set an intention, the forebrain releases dopamine and it sends a signal to the rest of the nervous system that says, hey, pay attention. This is important. Then the dopamine is turned into acetylcholine, which is what allows us to focus and pay attention. And so when you set an intention, it puts like in motion this cascade of neurochemical, neurophysiological events that help make sure that you follow through on it. And so I just find that so fascinating that our intentions matter. You know, I think so many people feel bad about setting intentions and then not doing it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And yet I always come back to just that purity of heart of like, I really want to make this change. For example, for me, I've always had a lot of self-judgment around being a mother. I've just never felt like I did it right or did it well enough. And So I would set all these intentions and then I would break them. I would be impatient or I would yell and I would start judging myself. But then what I realized is my intentions were really pure, that there was an innocence to them and a dedication and that I could trust my good heart. And that just the fact that I cared showed that I was a good mother, Mm -hmm. right? That, That we need to allow ourselves to be in the process of change instead of imagining that it's going to be like flipping a switch and all of a sudden I'm going to be perfect. And that's helped me quite a lot. Mm, Yeah. I didn't know that. That's so fascinating. Gosh. It's kind of amazing. Actually. The other thing I'll just tell you all, because I think it's so fascinating is so your intention is what sets in motion neuroplasticity Uh after age 25, no one can change in a positive way, unless it's intentional, unless it's volitional. So from zero to 25, neuroplasticity is just a field day. It's just happening, right? You can just be cruising along and learning stuff. That's the way the brain works. After about age 25, it's no longer passive. You have to actively engage the neuroplasticity and setting an intention is the very first step. Mm -hmm. So this is 
pretty revolutionary for people to know if you want to make changes in your life. The other thing people don't know is that neuroplasticity happens when you're resting and sleeping. Mm. So it does not happen in the moment. It happens when you rest. And I think in our culture, we feel like we have to push, push, push. Mm-hmm. It really shows that our entire like being was built for both effort and rest. Mm. And that's why for me, meditation is so powerful is because it's, you're alert, you're clear, you're seeing things, but you're at ease. Mm-hmm. Right. And it really combines the two. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Gosh, I love this stuff. Well, and um, you said at the age of 25, this is when that uh, change occurs. Does that have anything to do with, I believe that's around the same time that our prefrontal cortex is fully developed. Exactly. So basically once the brain's developed, our grand designer was like, we don't really want things to easily change because Mm -hmm. we've, we've developed these important things to be able to live as a human being. So we only want to change these pathways if it's intentional. They, it doesn't, you don't want it to be passive anymore. And so after age 25, and this is important for people who are in relationships and they're like, oh, I'm going to change him. No, you're not, unless he <laughs> wants to change, right? If they're over 25, like it's game over unless they're hundred percent on board. So I think that's really important for all of us to know. Well, I have a question about that. So my, uh, my poor husband, you know, I love you if you're listening. I feel like he really changed and matured. It felt like almost overnight when he turned 40. Mm. It was almost like he came into this amazing amount of maturity and in, in the man that, because I was one of those people that was like, oh, I want him to do this. I want him to do that. I, I wish he were more like this and always trying to change him. Right. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it was like, he woke up at 40 and he was this amazing man. <laughs> and well, yeah, I would say I, hallelujah and celebrate it and, and right? for gratitude. One, one of the best ways to maintain changes is through gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. I recommend it to all couples. I recommend it to all parents that when you remind people of who they truly are, when you appreciate their goodness, it grows. Mm. So instead of shaming and nitpicking, what we want to do is put our attention on what is working and what is good. And gratitude practice is another really important part of the journal. And what's fascinating about gratitude is it is the fastest way to change your nervous system. That when we feel gratitude, the spikes and intensity of these shifts in our brain activity are greater than when you practice mindfulness and when you practice anything else. And so both giving and receiving gratitude are incredibly powerful. And I encourage people to kind of make that part of their daily practice. Mm, Very cool. Thank you so much, Shauna. I want to be mindful of your time, but there's so many more questions I want to ask you. I think what I'd actually personally love to know is in your study of psychology, there's, there's so many, I think of it like standing on the shoulders of giants. Like when I think about Jungian psychology, is there anyone that's really inspired your work or kind of like inspired you to go in this direction in this, on this path? Yeah. So one person who's really inspired me is Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist. Um, He was actually in the concentration camps Mm. in Nazi Germany. And there's this quote that for me sums up the entirety of mindfulness. And he says, between the stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies your power to choose. In your choice lies your growth and freedom. And so for me, mindfulness 
kind of helps us slow down, see clearly with discernment, like we've been talking about, and then choose, how do I want to meet this moment? How do I want to live this life? Instead of being on automatic pilot and kind of reactivity, it puts us back in choice. And I love that quote. He's quite an inspiration. I highly recommend Man's Search for Meaning, his one book. And yeah, I think he's my person, I would say. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. We'll make sure to add links for that quote and his book in our show notes, as of course, as well as the (laughs) beautiful journal and your prior book. And where can people go to find you on the web, on the socials? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram, Dr. Shauna Shapiro. And people always have trouble finding me because I didn't start with S. It starts with DR. <laughs> and then I also have a website, shawnashapiro.com. And please reach out. I always respond to messages. I always answer questions and just feel grateful to be sharing this work that has really helped me so much. And we're grateful to have you. Thank you so much for your time, Shauna. Mm, you're welcome. Okay, here's my latest obsession with the things that I wear. I need to wear something that is ultimately comfortable. Back in the day, I'd wear really uncomfortable heels or I'd wear something that was a little extra tight. Today, I'm all about the comfort. Rothy's could be your new everyday shoe obsession. Rothy's shoes give you the right out of the box comfort and they come in amazing styles and colorways and you can wash them. The best part is everything Rothy's makes is better for the planet. They've repurposed millions of water bottles into their signature thread that goes into every single one of their products. And if you're like me, I want to do everything in my power to contribute to saving the planet. Right now, I'm currently wearing The Point. It is so comfortable and it looks classy and I can wear it with jeans. I can wear it with my yoga pants and it's feeling even cozier after its first wash. So you can step up your shoes and accessories this spring and get ready to be asked, are those Rothy's? Plus you'll get $20 off of your first purchase. Head over to rothys.com forward slash loved. That's www.rothys.com forward slash loved to get $20 off of your first purchase. rothys.com forward slash loved. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Radically Loved Podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest today. Amber, you, I had so much fun doing your podcast when I was doing my little book tour and we became quickly acquainted, fast friends. And uh, I'm just, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And and I think actually today that the day we're recording this, which is probably irrelevant to the people listening to this, is the day that your podcast is going live on my show. So (gasps) how fun is that? Yeah, there you go. Well, I had no idea. <laughs> What's the synchronicity? I know. I just remembered that as we're talking right now. And so today, my team will be emailing you, but you're going live today over here. So how fun. They can yes. get the whole surround sound story for both of us. This is very exciting. I, oh man, we had such a good time. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Well, yeah, I can't wait to share. How fun. What's your spring been like, by the way? Just side note. Oh my gosh. You know, obviously I told you when we had our interview, we adopted our son mm-hmm. in March. And so it was like a week before spring started. And so it's been having a newborn and an eight and a half year old and being just very like 
brutally reacquainted with sleep deprivation with no runway on, you know, preparation for it. (laughs) And there's a reason why pregnancy happens the way that it does. uh, I'm realizing it really prepares you for what is about to come forth, but it's been really miraculous in all of the ways. But of course, like being able-bodied in this season and, you know, my daughter was born, I had a near-death experience. And so I was very broken physically when she was in this phase. And so I'm really, I'm just, experiencing it from a very different vantage point and really soaking it up and just really, I'm just so conscious of every little milestone and every little moment. And it's just such a gift. And so that's happening. We all got the vid, all of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So we just, just coming out of that. (sighs) And, you know, it's been, it's like missed Easter weekend with the family. They were like out in the yard hiding eggs for my daughter through the windows. (laughs) We're so loved. We have such amazing people in our lives. And it was just like the oh, two and a half weeks of just torture. It was like, okay, but you know, we're okay. And we have these healthy bodies. And um, where I live in New Hampshire, it is finally becoming warm. It's like high 60s, starting to become 70 degrees in the next week or so. And I am so excited. We put the dock out this weekend and all these little rituals, right? It's like, I really live a very present life. You know, it's like, a, it's, it's a big deal putting the dock yeah. out every, at the the start of the spring season and thinking of all the memories that are going to happen and all of it, you know, like I, these things are not lost on me. I'm one of the most like sappy, nostalgic, like people you're ever going to know. I'm definitely a crier, but I'm just, I'm just taking notes, Rosie. You know, it's like life goes by so quickly. I'm in a season right now where my parents are well. My dad just actually got the good news that the melanoma that he was diagnosed with, I mean, this all happened at the same time. He had a melanoma diagnosis and then they cleared him and it's gone. And blessing wow. of blessings, like all these things have happened just in the last few weeks. It's been really intense. And so I like to just try to slow down as much as I can and just like soak it up because the reality is it's just never going to be this way again, right? Like my parents are here. They're able to do things. They're of the age where they can take care of their grandkids. Like we can have holidays together. You know, I have a baby and a, a young daughter. It's like, I don't mean to sort of have this like foreboding sort of fear of the future, but the reality is it's never going to be like this again. So I don't want to miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I love that's like spoken right out of my heart. I mean, you really are just going straight into the secret sauce of living and the epitome of being in the present moment. And I, and I love that. And I do want to give the listeners a little bit of context that you did have a near death experience in 2013, if I'm correct. And your daughter on the same day. And if you don't mind sharing, I think that there is a lot to be said about your experience and having this mindset. So if you don't mind sharing with us. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, 2013, I was, I have been living life at warp speed. You know, I was working my corporate job. I worked in collegiate athletics. I was at the top of my field and I'd been a division one athlete before that. So I just knew how to work. I knew how to achieve. I knew how to just full throttle everything. And I had the capacity, right? I was a strong athletic person. I had just enormous capacity and also an incredibly high pain tolerance and thresholds, right? As a division one athlete, like you literally train your whole life to be able to withstand discomfort and pain. 
so these factors matter. And so I'm in my pregnancy and it was very uncomfortable and it was very challenging in a lot of ways. And, you know, it came down to the day before my due date. And I literally, this is going to make you laugh. I'm at home. It's the morning. It's the, the morning of August 29th. And I'm, it's like seven in the morning and I'm just feeling super uncomfortable. And I'd had like a, basically like a complete meltdown existential crisis the night before. And I don't really know why, but now I know because I was in early stages of labor, but I'd never done that before. And so I was like losing my mind to my husband. I was like, I'm never going to have this baby. Like this is, I hate my body and torture. Like I was losing it. And the next morning I wake up and I'm trying to eat breakfast. I'm like, oh, I feel so sick. Like, this is so weird. I just keep having these cramps. Like, what the heck? Like, I couldn't figure out what's going on <laughs> with my body. And so I text, I, I email my boss and I'm like, I'm feeling, I literally wrote it this because we had that kind of relationship. I was like, I'm feeling a little crampy this morning. I think I'll be in like closer to noon today. Mind you, it's the day before my due date. Okay. So I sent her this email and then I proceed to text my sister-in-law, who's an ER nurse, like from the toilet and saying to her, like, I just keep getting these cramps and I don't know what's going on. I'm really feeling bad. Like having a very logical conversation about the level of my pain. And she's like, so how far apart are these cramps? And she uses air quotes. And I'm like, I don't know, I guess like five minutes. She's like, okay, so you're in labor and I'm like, oh, oh, this is what it feels like. This is labor. Like it was just the weirdest experience. I was so like disassociated yeah. from what was actually happening in the body that I inhabited. And so I called the nurse or the doctor's office and, and I can like, at this point, it's like hard for me to talk. And I'm saying to him, like, it's just, it really hurts. Like I probably am in labor. Like this does not feel good. And she's like, okay, don't come to the clinic. Just go straight to the labor and delivery and we will meet you there. Okay. Like, do you have someone who can drive you? Do you have like a, somebody, like my husband wasn't home. He was at work. Do you have a neighbor? And I looked outside and it was just like, only the weird neighbors were home. And I just said, <laughs> yeah, I've got a neighbor. And you know what I did. Hung up the phone, like limp myself in my of suitcase course. downstairs with my pillow, throw it in the backseat of the Subaru, grit my teeth through the, through the contraction and back that thing out of the driveway and drive myself to the hospital in labor. When I get there, I am six centimeters dilated. Like I am literally inches, centimeters, just millimeters away from having a baby, right? I am literally in full-blown labor. So I get there and the pain is insane. I'm realizing at this point, being someone who has a very intimate relationship with pain, I'm like, this is no joke. This is what they wrote about, right? This is a labor situation. And I'm feeling the intensity of it. So I do get an epidural. It gives me some relief. It kind of slows things down, but they're like, you're now nine centimeters. And so I'm thinking that this experience somehow I've carried with me my whole life. This feels very important to say. I was told my whole life that, you know, my mom would recant my labor story and you were, took 17 hours to have you and you yeah. put me through hell and all this, yeah. right? Like I, oh, like I really meant to do that, mom. I was an infant and I just had this idea in my head. <laughs> like that it was I your was, intention, right? It's like <laughs> right. I was three weeks late. Like the, the list just goes on. So I just had this story in my mind, like first babies are, take forever to come out. And like, this isn't going to be easy. And I'm just pushing and they're like, it's go time. And so I think this is crazy. Like, I can't believe I'm just going to like push this baby out. Like this is going to happen. This is not how I imagined it. And lo and behold, four hours later, didn't go that way. My body started kind of being depleted. I was getting a fever. Her heart rate was up. And so now we're in an emergent situation where the nurses are 
I can tell they're like talking to each other, they're whispering, they're and and I'm my contractions are just coming and coming and coming, and I'm getting weak and tired. And I'll tell you, if anybody's going to push a baby out that day, it is this girl. Like I, I division one athlete status, trying to labor this baby out, but she was face up, you know, looking up, and she just wasn't rotating to come out. And so they wheel me in for this emergency C-section at this point. And there are a lot of dramatics that kind of happen from there, but they gave me the spinal. They gave me more of a block, right, for the procedure. And as they lay me down on the table, I started to notice within a few minutes that my diaphragm, like my breathing mechanism was getting shallower and shallower. And I was noticing it was really hard for me to breathe. And I was noticing like I couldn't take a deep breath. And it got to the point where I started to feel like I was like gasping for air and very close to passing out. And I noticed that there had been Jack Johnson music playing. That wasn't playing anymore. And then I heard my surgeon who was standing on my left hip say to the anesthesiologist who was behind me, what can I do to help? And I knew in that moment when she's the one who's supposed to be leading the show here, like we're supposed to be getting a baby out into the world. And she's asking him how she can help that something is really wrong. And within just a few minutes, I don't really understand what the time frame that was going on in that moment, I lost consciousness and I, I blacked out. And I'll tell you, Rosie, like that, the first thing that I felt, I'll be completely candid, in that space between was this deep feeling of regret, mm. like this deep feeling of regret and this knowing that there was, there was more in my life I wanted to do that I hadn't done, wasn't doing. It was just so obvious. It was like blatant. It was it was like a deep pain and ache. And that ache lifted pretty rapidly, but it was there. I think it's important to note, like that happened. And then I had that whole sort of like, as they talk about the bird's eye view out of body visual, I could see myself. I could see my parents who were out in the waiting room. I could see my husband. Oh, it always makes me cry to talk about that. Mm. Yeah, and I could see them like in real time. And to the fact, like specific details that I witnessed that I asked them about later that they were like, how did you know that? And so I saw, I saw that and I just felt this unbelievable sensation of love. Like just no human words can capture the depth of what I felt in terms of that love. And it was this reciprocity of like, not only did I get to be loved by them, I got to love them too right? Like just this depth. Mm -hmm. And it was so perfect and beautiful and relaxing. It was just like all of the pressure and intensity and grip just completely melted away to the point, honestly, that I was like, okay, like I fully surrender. If this is where I'm meant to go, God, if this is, and I wasn't a person who really talked to God back then. I didn't even use the word God, but I said God. I remember saying that. If this is what is meant to be for my life, you know, I surrender. And I, and I did that knowing that my daughter was going to be loved by these people, no matter what. And she had this father and these grandparents. And oh, it was just, it was so beautiful. And I will tell you, it was like this obviously miraculous moment, but the fullness of that surrender was almost like a switch that flipped. And as soon as I entered into the surrender, I was conscious again. I was awake and I heard the anesthesiologist standing behind me and he yelled and he said, go, go, go to the surgeon. And with a sense of urgency, you know, the, the procedure happened and I was back in my body and I could feel not the pain, but I could feel the pressure and I could feel the sensations that, that you can feel. 
And moments later, Ani emerged into the world and everything changed. You know, every single thing changed for me on the inside. And it would take time, you know, for that to really Sink radiate in. outward, come yeah. forth for me to consciously comprehend. But it just changed me. I, you know, I've, I've heard Abraham Hicks say, uh, near-death experience is a quantum shift in consciousness. And I really feel grateful that I had the opportunity to have that experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, I can't imagine how powerful that must have been. And I have so many questions about just integrating that experience Mm -hmm. into your being, into your life. You as a person, you as a mother, as a partner, as a daughter, like so much to take in, you know, in that moment. I find it so fascinating that for some of us, we need those types of extremes to be present in our lives. It's the truth. I needed that. I know I needed that to wake up because I was going to miss a lot. And I was clear. I was really clear on what I wanted for my life, how I wanted to live my life. I was clear that I had set my life up in such a way that I was missing the moments I couldn't get back. I was missing myself missing my my own growing up process. And mm-hmm. I knew I needed to make some major changes to the way that my life was designed, you know, the way that I was doing work, the way that I was orienting toward work and toward money and toward the baseline belief systems that founded how I functioned. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit when you had me on on your podcast. And I definitely want to dig a little bit deeper into that. But I'm curious, right after your experience, like, how were you able to shift so radically once you integrated back into your life, your daughter's home? Was it something that just, it's like a flip of the switch where you just completely perspective shift, life shifts? Like, how did this start to integrate into your life? Yeah, it took time. So the three and a half months that I had off for maternity leave, a huge portion of it I spent healing. I was, my body was really, really, really messed up. You know, my stomach stopped working in my recovery process. I had an abscess in my incision and every day, you know, need to be drained and packed and healed. I had an, I had cellulite, I had infection. So my body went through hell on the other side of that whole procedure in other ways. And it would take me time, you know, to really heal those wounds and to get functioning. I actually was, I was uh, released from the hospital and then readmitted for like another week. And so then we went back to the hospital, the same exact room we were in. And Ani was now an outpatient. Ani wasn't a patient anymore. She was just a baby there. Uh, Her mom was the patient. And so that was a huge thing that had to happen, right? I had to, I was admitted into labor and delivery to be supported for more healing. So the integration work continued, right, with that. And I had never taken time off from work, right? I had been a Division One athlete before that. And I grew up with a family knowing, you know, that middle-class family, my parents worked super hard, multiple jobs to maintain that lifestyle, to give their kids opportunities that we had. I knew if I wanted to go to college, I was going to have to get a scholarship. I was going to have to achieve my way there. And so I made a decision when I was like nine, 10 years old that soccer was going to be my ticket. And so I worked exceptionally hard for all of those years and was afforded really amazing opportunities to play with teams that got in front of scouts. I had a dad that was calling, you know, 
like oh, on my behalf, like just advocating for me, like getting me in front of coaches who were like, she's from New Hampshire. Like they didn't want to look at me. And, um, oh, if I talk about my parents, I always cry. So yeah, but I did, I got that scholarship. And so I think the thing is like, I spent all those years working so hard. Like I didn't know any other way, just work hard. And then I got a job and I worked in my alma mater in the athletic department and it's a blue collar space and you just work hard there. It's the only mode that I knew. And so now I had three and a half months not working. I had never in my lifetime experienced a fall season of life not working at something. And so I had to, I got to slow down and I realized that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed not going full throttle. I enjoyed getting to rest a little bit. I enjoyed getting to dream into what I wanted to do next. And I remember this one day I was on the phone with a friend who knew me really, really well. And I just said to her, I, you know, I was going back to work within, I think it was a week and a half. And I just was crying on the phone and saying, I just don't want to go back. I don't want to go back, but I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, I have to make this money for my family. This is, we're not in a situation where I cannot work. She said to me, Amber, this is your life. And she said it like that. This is your life. And I'll never forget it because the word life just hung in the air. And I had never thought that my life was my life. I lived all of these years feeling like I had to tick all these boxes and survive and achieve and prove and accomplish. And I didn't, I mean, I was 32 years old when she said this to me. And the idea of like walking away from the framework of everything that I had known for how you do life was the most terrifying thing in the world. And it was that one sentence that served as an opener on the heels of the near-death experience for me to say, I can't go back. And so I did go back to work, but I was changed. And I remember walking through the doors and sitting at the desk and feeling in really big ways and just thinking like all of these things that everybody's so stressed out about and so making like such a big deal. I don't understand why it's such a big deal. It was like, I couldn't make it work anymore. I had changed so much and just, I saw through such a different lens. So fast forward from that, it was around December of 2013. And in April of 2014, I ended up giving my notice and launching a business, you know, and I was building this coaching business, feeling like a complete imposter but doing it at the end of the day when my daughter was finally asleep and Ben was working the night shift as a cop and I was building my little Squarespace website and, you know, writing in the Facebook groups and trying to learn from people and man, you know, and I did this and I remember the first client who said yes. I mean, I literally had to like open my Word document to find what my prices were because I couldn't believe it. I was just like, oh, okay, you know, and I, I was like so excited when she said yes. And then this thing sparked for me and I realized okay, wait a minute. If I can work with one client and then do this financially, what would it look like to have two clients? And what would it look like to have three clients? What would it, and I just started to do this math. And then I realized that's, I mean, that's spending two hours, three hours a month to do this. Come on now. You know, this is good math. And so I started to like really this is good math. I get together. And I was I was spending 40, 50 hours a week at my job and, and the ceiling was the ceiling. Yeah. And so I just knew it was time for me to take this leap. And the only person who could bet on me was me. And so I called on my inner athlete and I and I, you know, I got my little swagger on and I went for it. And, you know, long story, super long here, but you know, we're 
let's I'm celebrating my eight year anniversary of being in my my coaching business. And we've built a multiple seven figure company that's retired my husband from his police career that's touched the lives of hundreds of thousands of people worldwide that has allowed my children to have their parents, their parents home, right? With them doing the things. We're homeschooling our daughter now because that's what's best for her. And we're doing the thing, you know, we're doing the thing. So that's the journey. That's a snapshot of the journey. I mean, I love it so much. And there's, God, it's like so so many different directions I want to go here. First of all, you're an author. You've written books and you've also co-authored a book with another author. There's this sort of, I don't know, I see it as all being part of your holistic self, right? But you wrote a book, Master Your Money Mind, and paddle home, which is a poetry book, right? So I want to be able to tell the listeners the difference between the two books. And I feel like now that you've given us some context to me, just if I was the listener, I'd be like, okay, this totally makes sense, you know, but just tell the audience a little bit about both books and how we can marry both together. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, there was a a time when I was thinking about like, what is the deepest ache here? You know, and I've done a lot of therapy and moved through the eating disorder and all that jazz, but it was like, what is the thing just haunts me? And it was money. It was like, I can't seem to figure this thing out, right? As an entrepreneur, as, as a kid who grew up watching my parents struggle and just live into the story of money is hard and money's impossible and it's just never going to get any better. And I just thought, you know, I remember as a kid watching the teammates' parents get in the Explorer and like have a different experience. Like it just, there's people who have different experiences of this. There can't just be one way to approach this topic. Like there are people who are doing this really well. And I want to figure that out. And so I started studying. I started paying attention. I started reading books and I'm just like the eternal student learner. I'm just such a nerd. I mean, I'm always reading and peeling things back and taking notes and like rewriting everything. It's just how my brain works. And I just geek out on it all. And I just thought, man, like the world would be really different if we had a a different approach to money, especially us women, especially us sisters and mamas and aunties and everybody in between. Like what happens when we're sovereign beings with our finances and we're not dependent and codependent and reliant? And so I'm going to write a specific like niche book about this topic that feels like a deep ache for so many like everybody I know, like I don't really know anybody. I have a couple of friends who are, you know, balling out and they feel like they got it all together financially. But I wouldn't say that they like live in financial serenity. And that's a place that I really want to be. It's like this place of this peace financially and this place of like really understanding the roots of why it's so traumatic and so dramatic for us so that we can get in the driver's seat with our own financial reality. And so it's very much a mindset book. And I just really recanted my own journey of what I've learned along the way and and provided some insights and exercises for my readers to look at their own story. And so that's, you know, it it really is a reticent of the way that I coach as a business coach and a mindset coach and all this. And then Paddle Home is my heart. You know, it's my, it's my heart, my soul in a book. It is my art. I never would have thought that I'd be writing a poetry book, but as this book came into form, I just realized that the passages kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter and more universal and less about me and more about us. And I'm an artist in my own right in different ways. And I just, Paddle Home came into form in this very specific way. And I feel really proud of it. I feel 
really grateful for it. I feel like I'm like you, Rosie, like a multidimensional person and I can't really be defined by like my favorite song. I have a yeah. million favorite songs. Yes. And so I don't like when people try and get me to choose one. I'm like, I yeah, can't. Like this what is... day of the week is it? Like what yeah. hour is it? I mean, I don't like, know. Like what kind of mood are we going into? Like right. I need to understand. <laughs> Give me some context. You know? Exactly. Exactly. What is your current definition of success? Mm. So good. Being where my feet are, feeling at home in my body. Really, I think it's deep presence. It's being right where I am and not striving or scrambling or keeping score. Mm. Like this deep appreciation for the divinity of my life, like that my chance to be here. It really is that. And I think money and all these things, these sort of stereotypical components of how we talk about success are just byproducts of, of that alignment. That's how I've experienced it. You know, the more rooted I am, the more aligned I am, the more joyful I am, the more at peace I am with myself and the conditions that are afoot. I mean, even when I'm laying in bed with COVID, you know, it's like, <laughs> I can be at peace here. And I just find the more I focus my energy there, connecting to spirit and God, the opportunities and all those things just come, right? They just, it's like you magnetize them, yes. but it's not because there's a deficiency that I'm trying to make up for. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm just like sitting here, just taking it in. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. How is your spiritual practice I mean, you kind of answered this, but I, I'm wondering if there's anything that you feel compelled to share. Has your spiritual practice changed since becoming a mom? Mm. I mean, every single thing is spiritual. Every single thing is sacred. Yeah, I could just weep. Just their little faces, you know, their little hearts, their little hands. They're just their being. And I think about like, Rosie, you and I were like that once. Like all of us here listening to this, we were all those sweet little ones. We still are. We can treat ourselves with the same loving care that we do our children. And that's been the biggest healing process. That's been the biggest inroad to acknowledge that my children are enough exactly as they are. And if that is true, then so am I. Mm. That is uh, so deep and so beautiful. And I knew that we would have such a great conversation. I am so inspired by the way you live your life and your ability to be fully present in everything that you do. And I love your out-of-body near-death experience, as scary as it was, I'm sure, and is for all of us, the fact that you were able to really utilize that experience as a wake-up call to live your purpose, to really just fully live your life. And I think a lot of us can get bogged down by the mundanity of life at times and feel like we're not doing enough, we aren't enough, it's not good enough, things can be better. And instead, utilizing each moment as an invitation to 
be fully present in this experience because this is the only experience that you have right now. That's it. That's it. it. Don't miss it. You know, like I think the inroad of looking at our kids, it's just, it's a shortcut because we've got a lot of drama with ourselves and a lot of history. And the reality is, is our children, our pets, you know, my little pup is sleeping behind me right now. They don't have any judgments. They don't think that you're not enough. They don't. And that's just our stuff. And so I needed to be reminded of that. I needed to learn that lesson so I could practice it and try it on and forgive myself more and more and more and more and accept myself in all of my perfect imperfections, you know, more and more and more and more. And I feel like being my own soft place to land is probably the greatest victory of my life. Finally getting to that place because the only reason that I can rejoice in that is because I know what it feels like to just brutalize myself. I know what it feels like to hate myself. I know what it feels like to want to just like not be here anymore. And so to be in this place where I can be kind and loving to me, even when I'm maybe embarrassed of myself or ashamed or I don't feel proud, right? But the the set point or the place I go back to is compassion, radical love for myself. I realize that I'm going to be able to give that to others in a more honest way. And the most important work of my lifetime is to do that deep healing. Amber, thank you so much. You've shared some incredible insight, some incredible wisdom here with us today. And I couldn't be more grateful to know you, to learn about your story, to hear your words. It's so inspiring and comforting. And I hope that everybody listening to this felt that same comfort and nurturing. Where can people go for more information? Yeah. I love Instagram so much, you guys. So at Amber Lillystrom on the gram, I love just sharing the behind the scenes of life and the shenanigans and the fun stuff we're doing. And I'm over at AmberLillystrom.com. If you're you know, building a business or wanting to get into that next phase of of your own entrepreneurial journey, would love to support in any way that I can. And then the books are on Amazon. So that's an easy place to grab those as well. Yeah. So we'll put all of those links in the show notes. Be sure to check them out. And Amber, thank you again so much for being here and for sharing your love and wisdom and truth with us. We hope you'll come back and see us again. Thank you, Rosie. I appreciate you, sister. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.